Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and this week we're celebrating this year's recipient of Film at Lincoln Center's annual Chaplin Award. It's an actress who's essayed some of the most striking performances of the last 25 years, and someone whose almost superhuman versatility is matched by her consistency as an artist. It's none other than Kate Blanchett. In an in-depth tribute essay now live on filmcomment.com, the scholar Amy Herzog writes that Blanchett is often described as chameleonic or set to disappear into the character. But these takes which suggest an innate and natural ability for imitation don't quite capture the careful calibrations of Blanchett's craft. A couple weeks ago, I sat down with Blanchett to dig into those calibrations and the process behind some of the most interesting performances of her career. We discussed her iconic turns in Jim Jarmusch's Coffee and Cigarettes, Todd Haynes's I'm Not There, Taika Waititi's Thor Ragnarok, and some deeper cuts, like her early roles in the Australian miniseries Border Town and Tom Tickver's Heaven, which was written by Krzysztof Kieslowski. It was a rich and wide-ranging conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I'm so pleased to welcome to the Film Comment podcast a very, very special guest and the recipient of this year's Chaplin Award, Kate Blanchett. Kate, it is an absolute honor to have you on with us today. And our Film Comment podcast tradition is to ask our guests to introduce themselves. But I thought, well, I'm not going to ask Kate Blanchett to introduce herself. I think it's impossible to introduce yourself. And sorry, go ahead. No, but then I was wondering, you know, how often do you encounter people who don't know who you are? And when that happens, how do you identify yourself? Well, I have the great, like, basic um, linguistic trouble of not really knowing how to say my name. So that's kind of <laughs> problem one-on-one. Yeah, all the time. I don't know. I must have one of those faces. It's always been the case with me that people have said, did I, do I know you? What? I went, I Oh, no, uh, did I go to school with you? And I, I didn't know we didn't go to school together, I don't think. But, you know, I think, I don't know, maybe that's a, it's been a great sort of virtue or, or a benefit for me that I've been able to sort of fly under the radar. Wow, I, I can't quite believe that. But also you've played so many different people so believably that that also kind of makes sense. It's all the wigs. It's the different wigs. <laughs> that's, that's what it is, wigs. and Well, not quite noses, but there you are. What did you mean when you said you have this linguistic problem? What did you mean by that? Oh, no, no. I just, my, my mother, when she, I guess because of the Australian accent, when she'd go to the bank and I'd be with her as a child, I just remember it. I'd ask her what her name was and she'd say Blanchett and then write Blanchard. And so then she started saying Blanchette, but not all the time. And so I didn't know how to pronounce it. So, um, yeah. Isn't that kind of like that's first base and beginning to be able to introduce yourself? That there's something metaphorical there, something about the chameleonic, <laughs> you know, 
changes of identity. Um, so we we wanted to talk about your career today. And, you know, I was just like, how do we do that in the time we have? You have a very long career with so many great performances, you know, just going through the list is intimidating and many more still to come. I mean, you're shooting so many great projects right now with some of the top directors. So I thought maybe one way to do this would be to go through a few scenes, specific scenes from across your career that I think really give us an entry point into your craft. You're, you're game for that? As long as I don't have to watch them, I'm fine. No, no, no. <laughs> this is all audio. I'm just going to describe them briefly and then ask you about, you know, about what went into them. Okay, sure. I wanted to start with what might be a deep cut, a very, very early role of yours an Australian miniseries called Border Town. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yes, where I played um, uh, Bianca, who was, uh, it was, it was in sort of a detention camp. About migrants. Yes, which is a long detention camps that had long and checkered histories in, uh, history in Australia. But I was, um, it was sort of a, because uh, that term get used anymore, magical realism. Um, and I played an Italian immigrant who was detained and she was an albino. Exactly. Your introduction in that series, I don't know if you remember it. It's incredible. You get off this bus and you, do, and you introduce yourself in Italian and you sort of lunge at these characters and there's this reddish glint in your eyes and you're menacing and sexual, but also clearly scared because you're new. Watching that, I mean, this was 1995. Gosh. <laughs> before Elizabeth, I mean, so long ago. But you can already see what makes you so good as an actress, which is that you're able to do this very outre role. You know, it's all affectations, but it never feels like a caricature. It's immediately a person. So I don't know if, do you remember about how you got that role? And also such a risky and sort of unconventional role for a very young actress. Yes, I was, um, I was excited and surprised to be cast. But that was at a time where I was really just starting to be on that on, it was on a television series, but um, I had primarily worked in the theatre and I was actually, I got the job, but I was still performing on stage in Melbourne and it was being shot in Sydney. So I would have to film really early in the morning and then get on a plane at four o'clock in the afternoon, fly down and perform and then fly up at the end of the performance that night ready to film the next day. So it's a kind of a a lost of the experience not the people I remember the people but the the actual process of preparing for it I mean apart from having early onset dementia and I can't remember a thing I yeah I, I can't remember a lot about it I mean and a lot of the actors Hugo Weaving was in it Mitchell, dear friend of mine Mitchell Butel was in it there were some really fantastic actors who were forging careers both on screen and on stage so I felt like I was with kindred spirits in that way and it's so interesting because, you know, you had a role, you produced the CD Stateless recently for Netflix, which not similar, but it's also about immigrants in Australia, right? Well, no, not immigrants in that sense. It was refugees and asylum seekers. And it was the last point when immigration detention was onshore before it got shunted offshore. Yeah, but I, I don't know if it was, it's a crazy kind of closing of the circle. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've always, I've always been very fascinated 
not necessarily as a performer, but but just as a, I've always been interested in the perspectives and stories of, of people who are outside. And I think for me too, being Australian, it was such a, a hodgepodge of cultures. Obviously, there's an incredibly powerful, long Indigenous cultural history, but wasn't taught at all when I was at primary school. So that was, I was uncovering that when I was at university. And then, of course, when I was at primary school, it was the brand Australia was multiculturalism. So, you know, we all of our, um, we didn't really value our own culture. So as a result, you know, I, I went in my very early years, the, the screen culture that I imbibed was European, it was American. And, and then, you know, I discovered, obviously, the Australian New Wave and the incredible films that were, were being made by, you know, Gillian Armstrong and Peter Weir and, of course, you know, not Australian, but Jane Campion. It was really a rich time to be growing up in Australia. At an outsider's perspective, I think that I'm, because we are a country that has by and large been, you know, has benefited from the positive waves of immigration and welcoming stance with refugees. So the next scene I wanted to talk about, you know, also you're, you play an outsider in that as well, and also has an Italian connection, and that's the movie Heaven, where you played Filippa, the school teacher who's been losing students to drug addiction and violence and who plants a bomb in one of these cartel leaders' offices. And there's this fantastic scene. I mean, just every time I watch it, I tear up, where... Your character has just planted this bomb and then it's taken away by a cleaner into an elevator. And so it explodes, it kills four people and not your target. And when you're told that by the police and that realization dawns on your face, I mean, it's like definitely one of your greatest moments on screen, in my opinion. And again, so early in your career. Oh, thank you. I mean, that was from a Christoph Kozlowski script, you know, one of the incredible filmmaker i mean the decalogue i mean when i uncovered the decalogue and discovered that that would just life was life-changing so to be he obviously made red white and blue and had planned another trilogy heaven hell and purgatory and uh tom tikva had got after his death after tom tikva had got hold of the script that his estate had made available and then he did a rewrite so it went from polish to via it italian into german then back into it was a and and very much became a Tom Tickford film. And that was my my first encounter with Tom. Um, and he in that particular scene, I guess he realized the the understanding or the the empathetic connection for my character hinged on that scene. And he rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it. And I had to say to him after a while, I said, We've got to leave something to to give on the day. So when we actually came to film it, I, that was, I suppose, when I drew on my my theatre practice is that, you know, you're sort of experiencing things, losing and then refinding them um, in front of an audience. And that's also when I really, really appreciated um, the, the first interface with an audience is not only the director and the, the camera operator and, and the DP, but the entire crew. So you have a sense of who you're giving it to. So that was, yeah, it was quite amazing. And working with Giovanni Rabisi, we've worked together a couple of times. Yeah, that was wonderful. It's remarkable because it's this shattering moment and it's also the moment that Giovanni Ribisi's character is falling in love with you and there's so much going on. I mean, your performance has to make a lot of things believable at the same time, that you're a good person, that 
you're racked by this guilt, but there's also this genuineness coming through from you that is very appealing to the people around you. Yes, but you have sort of fingers crossed. And also you have to you have to have a healthy lack of consequence, I think, when you perform scenes like that. Um, because before I ever made a film, I used to look at performances and go, yeah, that's incredible, but oh my goodness, they've had so much time to perfect that. And of course you get on set and you realise it's an absolute fiction. You know, the, the light's going or, you know, we're... We're, we're under, you know, the, the budget's slipping through our fingers or whatever the reason is, or I've actually done a, a close-up, an incredibly intense scene. This is back in the day when they used to put film on camera and um, everyone went silent afterwards. And I thought, I just said, did you get it? Do we need to go again? And then it was silent and we were sort of, um, they just reloaded and went on. And normally you get some feedback, just, you know, what do you want, what do you want to change? And then they told me afterwards, he, with great shame, that they hadn't loaded any film. So sometimes, sometimes it's really not captured. And, you know, sometimes that's for the best. But um, I can remember the rehearsal for that more than I can remember the performance. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Okay, so scene number three, iconic. Not just one Kate Blanchett, two Kate Blanchetts, coffee and cigarettes, Kate and Shelley. (laughs) I mean, this is really a classic. And the reason I find it so special, there's this line that Lily Tomlin, you know, once said about acting. And she said, all I have is my face and body to make it believable. And I feel like it really applies to what you do in your segment in Coffee and Cigarettes. It's such a physical performance. There's hardly any prosthetics. I mean, even the makeup and all that, it's pretty minimal. Like, it's still your face. But it's two completely different people. And it's just the most minute little facial and bodily kind of affectations that you have that create two different personas. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, working with Jim was fantastic. I mean, it was, you know, incredibly low budget, incredibly fast. But that's often a really good way to work. There's no time for preciousness and there's no time for overthinking and playing to cousins. They were cousins. You know, you realise that it's fine that there's a similarity between the two characters, but it was about, I suppose, one was a parody of me as an actress and then the other one was, um, I don't know, just something that I un- understood, the sort of the, 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 the cynical perspective um, on, on people who are in the the limelight and have to navigate the sometimes vacuous ends of it but it was fun this is the thing about Jim is he's he he does things that are um heartfelt and and human but also they're so buoyant I knew it was an adventure and obviously working the DP who shot a razor head was a very very deeply Mm. um, so yeah and how did you, what was the preparation like for those two characters? Did you imagine biographies? You know, how did you come up with the different way of sitting and speaking and even flicking your eyebrow? 
I feel that the directors, you know, if they go to film school or even they're learning in the industry, they should really get to know, they get to know the, the lenses, they get to know, um, you know, the, the types of lights that are being used and they talk, have long discussions with the production designer, but they don't have, and sometimes the costume designer, but they don't often spend very much time, unless they're doing something with prosthetics, talking about hair and makeup. Because for me, that is where um, often you get the longest time in film to discuss a character, to try things out, because it's obviously in a highly visual medium. Um, and you've got to know, I for me anyway, what you look like so you can forget what you look like. But it's there's a lot of real estate on an actor's face in a close-up. And yet hair and makeup is often the last thing, particularly on a male set, may I say, that gets considered and folded into it. Like if you had a frame that had a sofa in that frame and that frame was predominantly made up of that sofa, the director would weigh in and say, no, that's not, I want orange, but that's not quite the right shade of orange. And when we put this particular tungsten light on it, it's going to read red rather than, so and if you're talking about the, the shade of a lipstick, it, it does matter whether it's a blue red or an orange red and whether it suits that person's skin. And maybe it's great because it makes them look creepy. You know, there's ways that makeup can actually enhance what you're trying to do. So for me, those discussions with hair and makeup um, teams have always been so uh, creative and exciting and, and foundational because it's a stepping stone to stepping in front of the character. And there's no dumb questions in the hair and makeup trailer. Um, and I think, you know, particularly when you're starting out, to, to ask those dumb questions and feel that they're going to be honoured and answered, I think it's really, really important. And so Jim was into all of that detail. And for me, once I got, once I started because there was no time, obviously, it was all it all was on the fly. But it's a great way to work. It's I guess it's a little bit like doing stand up, as you've got this these things, these ideas percolating. But it depends what the audience does on the night as to how the show goes. And um, and so I think once I got into, they say Shelley or Kate, the character, the character was called Kate, wasn't she? That I that then a different rhythm emerged. But it was yeah through that process. That's really fascinating, and actually. I think a good segue to the next one, which also involved a lot of, I think, hair and makeup and slipping into another character, another persona, which is I'm Not There, where you play Jude Quinn, uh, you know, directed by Todd Haynes, this kind of Bob Dylan riff. And, you know, you said in an interview that that was the first time that you wanted to be the character, like you really wanted to be Dylan and just have his... You know. Oh, but doesn't everyone? <laughs> of course, of course. Except Dylan. He doesn't want to be Dylan. <laughs> yeah, and that's why we all want to be him. Um, I want to know about that role. There's that press conference scene, you know, that I think is just a masterclass in doing something that's not just parody, but, you know, it, it's kind of riffing off of a real referent that you clearly had, but then imbuing it with your own understanding of Dylan's celebrity. There's like a way in which we're seeing him from the inside and outside in that scene that I think is great. Um, but also, when else uh, have you felt since that you wanted to be a character that you were playing? I'm curious if it's happened often. Um, I've had an experience on stage, which was very profound. Like I just wanted to 
to sit in that space and it was a breaking classic breaking of the 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 fourth wall and and you're sitting out with an audience and I just felt a profound sense of peace in that moment um and it was probably fleeting and momentary but like most uh, you know moments that feel like epiphanies they feel like they last for hours but what moment was it on stage what what character or play there's a Botto Strauss play called Gross und Klein and when we were, my husband and I were running the Sydney Theatre Company we took it through uh, Europe we did performed it in Sydney obviously and then we travelled with it and I was playing Lotta Cotta um, it was great Benedict Andrews a friend of mine um, who's who's directed several films actually about Gene Seberg and um, Una he directed with Mooney and oh right right yeah um, he he directed that it was yeah but I, on on screen I don't know I think the hardest thing for um, for me is kind of letting them go they always feel so elusive I you know you don't I mean on a series I guess you do or if you you're working for for the run of picture I guess you get to live with the character but you don't get to revisit it and I I love that feeling on stage of being able to go out the next night and, and find something new because it's always that thing of, the hardest thing I find on film is is letting them go and saying, but I've just got to know you. I've just finally realised who you are. I mean, and that's the, for me, the excruciating process of um, of doing things like this and talking about, about them. Because, <laughs> yeah, that's where my, um, my selectively bad memory kicks in, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So was Jude Quinn hard to let go? Oh, look, the reason, of course, that all of us wanted to make that film was because of Todd Haynes, you know. I'm the same reason I wanted to do coffee and cigarettes because of Jim. And so I would have done anything for him. But I did have a very surreal and concerning transition is that I literally walked off set playing Elizabeth I in the UK, packed up the kids. Uh, I finished on a Friday, packed up the kids, landed in Montreal and started on the Monday. I felt completely creatively bipolar. And it was a very, very strange moment of anyone coming into my dressing room while I was shooting The Golden Age uh, with Sheikha Kapoor. Is I would be, you know, in white face, big red wig, a huge corset and crinoline, just staring at the outtakes from the, from the, um, <laughs> from, uh, the all the documentaries on Dylan. Um, that was very strange. Yeah, so I, did, I was quite obsessed. I was quite obsessed, but it's also when when somebody asks you to, and it's an, it is an you know an interesting conversation to have now because I think there is a um, an understandable um, literalism that is creeping into the politics of playing against your gender, against your sexuality, against your cultural background. I think it's a really important and interesting discussion to have, and I wonder were Todd to make that film now whether there'd be a lot of arguments why you shouldn't cast uh, a woman in the role of, of Dylan at his most iconic. But in a way, I can totally understand why he did it because it was the most iconic silhouette when he went electric. And somehow it would make the job for a male actor so difficult because that people would be looking for comparisons and, and you know, it's being a looky-likey, it's an imitation, all of those things that people say when they don't like your performance. And with a woman, there was so much more freedom, you know, and there was a, a, to unlock the sort of the androgyny of, of him in that, in that period. Yeah, and, and androgyny of pop and rock stars like him and also I think the movie is so much about fantasy, like 
a level of celebrity that just becomes fantasy and Dylan lives in all of our heads as some version of ourselves. I, you know, and that's kind of what to me all the different versions of Dylan in the film represent. So I never mm -hmm. even really have thought of it as gender crossing necessarily, though on a very descriptive level, that's what it is. But it's I know, but that's exactly I, I completely agree with you. And it's and and really because of the the many phases of Dylan's life and him being such an enigma was probably the only way to grapple with his persona and the breadth of music that he's you know that he's made but I do wonder now what the conversation would be around that even though as you say it, it was such a unique and um elastic film you know I, I often rail against the literalism in 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 cinema sometimes certainly mainstream cinema but and you know I've made plenty of overly literalistic films um, and given plenty of overly literalistic performances but it's but I do find it really exciting when when that elastic space is opened up for an audience. How do you approach playing real people which you've done so often uh, in your career? Oh I know maybe too. yeah yeah it's well look it's it's the it's the dreaded biopic isn't it um, I think that was a kind of a uh, a form or a genre that was very alive, the, you know, the early turn of millennia. And certainly, when I was coming out in in the in the into the into emerging into the industry, the roles for women they were great, juicy, meaty roles were few and far between, and they would often find a really interesting um female character say like Amelia Earhart or Veronica Guerin who I played but the story around them wouldn't be about anything more often than um than the character themselves whereas if Oliver Stone's making JFK he's making a film about something you know I mean when, when Scorsese's making a film about Howard Hughes he's making a film about something and then he gets this juicy role with a fantastic actor like Leo to, to play Howard Hughes, and then it becomes a movie. It becomes a piece of cinema. And I think that women have really only recently sent a lot more women writers being recognised and, and um, given the chance to to sort of flex their muscles on bigger stories, bigger visions, um, that those roles have really emerged. Um, and so the biopic form, it would be the often ways that you could, try and try and tell us tell an interesting story about an interesting woman but often they remained in the biopic genre which I think has become a bit of a pejorative term I mean but I I don't think any of the ones that you've done would be dismissed uh, pejoratively well, at know. all depends who you talk to I mean that's the thing is there's so many different ways of making movies and there's that's what's great about it there's some people love a biopic and some people can't stand them well true of everything yeah, <laughs> in <yes>. life and <laughs> art <laughs> yeah. um so the next character i want to talk about is not real at all as far from real as you can get it's hella in thor ragnarok and there's this moment again when her first moment on screen and she's meeting odin and loki and you have your hip cock to one side and you know you're in this like gothic makeup and just camp dripping off you know, your body, your your dialogue, and you have this line, you say, darling, you have no idea what's possible, you know, when he challenges, uh, when he challenges you. And it's almost, I mean, it harkens back to like an old Hollywood 
vamp or something, you know? I, I just love that role. There's something so classically cinematic about it. And so for a role like that, how do you prepare? How did you prepare for that particular character? I didn't realize until Victoria Alonso t- told me, from, from Marvel, told me that, um, that I was the first female villain that they'd, that they'd ever had. And I think that we, it was a learning curve for all of us about what to do with a villain. You know, if you, if you look at Gary Oldman, he's played some of the great villains and the villains do something, you know, they have a psychology. So it was about finding out what she did. And I was thinking, oh, playing the goddess of death. And I don't know that we necessarily cracked the nut, but that's not what the movie's about. So you have a lot of ideas and then some of them get realised and some of them don't. And then you, um, like I had sort of based the whole thing on Susie Sue, you know, um, who I think is fabulous. Um, and, but then I saw the the rough cut of the picture and I go that okay the movie's become that okay so I need to completely revoice this and re- redo it so I played it a kind of a very different way actually and then that particular scene that you're referring to we had shot in Queensland where we were filming in an alleyway and I can't remember why I thought I looked fabulous um and I had <laughs> I walked down I had the right shoes on I got the walk right and then for some reason I don't know whether it was a lighting thing or just a story thing because the exciting thing about working with with Marvel is that they, anything can go because they're 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 kind of they've got a, a through line but they're they work with what input they get along the way they're like a rolling stone and so then we we shot it in Atlanta on like I cannot tell you I think it must have been 125 degrees and I was all in in that thick rubbery wetsuit thing so um once again it's one of those ones I can't really remember I was just trying not to sweat (laughs) but I suppose they can digitally remove it right but I shouldn't have worried (laughs) (laughs) no but that is uh you know they can digitally remove the sweat but like you still have to bring the emotion you know there's only so much they can't remove the vamp yeah they can't remove the vamp no (laughs) i want to talk about one of your more recent roles in mrs america you know we've been talking about you playing real people and you said you know how the idea of a women-centric biopic being something larger than the person i think that series is a wonderful example of just that and a scene that all of us cinephiles obviously lapped up is the closing scene, the reference to Jean Dielman by Chantal Ackerman. Yes. And I want to ask about that because it's so smart because what you're doing is, I mean, I don't know how much you were thinking about the Ackerman film uh, while playing that scene, but you're taking... A hundred percent. Okay, okay. <laughs> you're taking like this feminist classic, you know, from the 70s that's making a statement about feminism to play an anti-feminist character. I mean, it's it's very canny, that that inversion. So tell me a little bit about that. Darby Waller, who, who show ran the film, was very, obviously, very, like we all were very passionate about that that film and when she said that that because at the when I at the moment where I signed on it hadn't been written yet but she described the the arc of the story as well as my character and and the bookends of where Phyllis began and ended I found really interesting beginning in a kind of a beauty pageant to raise money for the Republican Party um, and then moving through her journey of wanting to get inside the White House 
um, to being exiled from that possibility and then going back into the kitchen and was and Darby was insistent and rightly so that she didn't ever want to see Phyllis in an, in an apron until that moment and so I, I, I was an absolutely um, that she was a trapped in a in a in a, a trap of her own making in that she sided with the patriarchy absolutely 110 percent and the Schlafly Eagles still do but yet she was pictorially in such a um a feminist fil filmmaker's reference point that she was a, a figment of the old world rather than the contemporary world so i found that even though a lot of where where we are frankly with reproductive freedom just for one how long ago did we make mrs america only what three years ago and look at look at what's happened already um in in america in that regard but it's you know, I was. I think it was really important to leave on an optimistic note in that way. So it was a kind of a we're Trojan horsing that into the series, I think. But obviously, not so secretly because Jean Dean one is such a recognizable cinematic construct. What do you mean by ending on an optimistic note? Like you wanted to gesture to a feminist history and future, even as we sort of are looking at this this person I think because obviously what the series was looking at was the rise and quick demise of the of of the achievements of second wave feminism but wanting to wanting to celebrate the legacy so it can you could feel like there's nothing's possible but then as women looking at that you wanted to say well no filmmakers have been doing this and they're doing this and their perspective is this so even though you know, this woman is sitting in a in a kitchen. There, she is part of the modern world, and that there is another way of looking at her life in a way that perhaps she can't even see. So it was. I think it was just as a counterpoint, really. Well, I know we're at the end of our time, and I think that's really maybe a great note to end on, Mrs. America. But just before we sign off, I wanted to ask you about your upcoming projects as well, because there's just so much exciting stuff you're working on. You're shooting Disclaimer with Alfonso Cuaron right now, I believe. You have a project with Todd Fields. You have a project coming up with Pedro Almodovar, who somehow I've always thought of you as an Almodovar heroine, you know? And it's it's all I'm almost like has there not already been a film with Kate Blanchett and Pedro? It's like, it feels like just a long time coming. Um, any any insights about that? And it's a Lucia Berlin adaptation. It just feels sort of an incredible convergence. Years ago, he'd come to me with the stories, the manual for cleaning women. And he's got such good taste. And he's, you know, obviously so highly, like, colour. Does anyone use colour? Like, like? Like him, maybe in the red shoes, perhaps. But he is—he's—he's he's very linguistically attuned, and so I think he needed to feel comfortable working in in English. So it was sort of on again, off again. And there was another little project that we were going to work on, and the dates just didn't work out. And so I'm so excited that we're finally we're we're finally um, doing this. So we'll start next year, and he's been meeting. There's so many fantastic characters in there. I mean, does anyone create? such exciting roles weird sort of interesting counterpoint roles women talking to women about seemingly strange surreal things in but yet highly realistic I mean if you think classic example is the most recent on Parallel Mothers where it's so affecting incredibly personal but quite sort of strangely political 
um, and he he deals with sort of highbrow and lowbrow simultaneously. So it's um there's no one like him. So I'm yeah I'm incredibly excited. So that's next year, and I'm just worked with Todd Field, which was fantastic. I mean he's such a fantastic collaborator in in Berlin. And that's Tar, right? Tar, yeah. I play a conductor of celebrated German orchestra, and my name is Lydia Tar. So it's about it's a sort of a fall from grace coming to Jesus moment and about the creative process, I think, and about power. So really interesting. And we're working with uh, Christos Niku on uh, a script of his called Fingernails. And is that Niku's, his previous film, is that? Apples. Apples? Oh, wow. And you're starring in it, in Fingernails? No, no, no. No, we're just, we're producing. You're producing. Okay. Yeah. Apples was wonderful. So I'm I'm really excited to hear that. Yeah. But then next after Koron is finally working with Warwick Thornton, who's an an incredible director. So going home to to do that at the end of the year. Wow. Okay. I mean, yeah, you've got a really busy, but seemingly very exciting year ahead. I mean, these are all just auteurs. So I'll let you go. But thank you so much, Kate. This was a wonderful conversation. I really am grateful for the chance to dig into your craft a little bit. Uh, we'll do that more when you're here in New York soon for the Chaplin Award Gala. Oh, yes. Um, and I just wanted to also mention that uh, on Film Comment, we also have a special essay on your craft and your filmography by Amy Herzog. So a lot more Kate content coming your way. And thank you and congratulations again. Thank you so much. Lovely to speak with you. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.